Support for Milledgeville Matters comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Milledgeville Matters on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm Daniel McDonald, and today we're going to take a deeper look at four constitutional referendums on the general election ballot this November 8th. I'm joined in the studio by our resident legal expert, Matt Ressing. And Matt, of course, is a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. Matt, welcome back to Milledgeville Matters. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure having you today, and I hope it's not too late to talk in depth about these constitutional amendments that we'll all be seeing on the November 8th general election ballot. Uh, But before we start our conversation talking about the referendum themselves, I thought we might start with just a brief conversation about how referendum make their way uh, to the ballot and how they take the form that they do. And now we discussed this a little bit beforehand, and I created some cheat sheets for us. Let's just start off by talking about how do referendum get on the ballot? Sure. These are very serious issues. What we're talking about is amending the Georgia Constitution. So the Georgia Constitution sets out our basic rights and responsibilities as citizens, the basic structure and powers of our government. So this is not something to be taken lightly, and it's not something that happens easily. It requires a two-thirds vote in both of the houses of the Georgia General Assembly. So a two-thirds vote of approval in the House, two-thirds vote in the Senate, and then, of course, it goes before the people as a ballot measure for a majority vote. Like we see here this year, sometimes these are major changes in different, I guess, applications of government uh, to the people. Sometimes they're uh, like one of the ballot referendums this year. uh, We've started allowing fireworks Mm -hmm. and uh, now we're collecting tax revenue off of fireworks. Uh, Do we want to set this to a special use or do we want it to just go back into the general fund? Are we trying to um, just take our crack at uh, longstanding issues, um, not only here in Georgia, uh, but uh, nationwide as in the case of the uh, Opportunity School District. But like you said, they're not to be taken lightly because, and that's why they have such a high bar to actually get before the voters. But I myself find that they're often overlooked by um, voters as they go towards these very much personality-driven parts of our elections. Uh, Would you say that's the case from your observations? Absolutely. It's not something voters generally think about until they're in the voting booth. You probably know who is in a presidential election year like this, you know, who's running for president. You may know who is running for Senate. If you're a little more politically savvy, maybe you're aware of your local races. But very few people, I would guess, really know a lot about these ballot measures until they get in the voting booth. And that's a problem because we'll probably talk about later, uh, you don't get the full text of the constitutional amendment on your screen when you step in that voting booth. What you get is a summary that has been put together that tries to wrap up a pretty complex issue in a few sentences and may, uh, I think we've seen some allegations for this measure, that it has some bias, that the people uh, who are behind the bill get to craft the language of this summary in a way that people may find leads voters in one direction, in a way that you know, we may say misleads voters. And of course, I want to just uh, back up what you're saying there by saying that the legislators who put forth these bills, and of course, you know, we could get in a much longer uh, conversation about 
adding riders to the bills and amending the bills while they're on their floor. But uh, really, the people who actually write the language that's on the ballot are also the people who brought this issue to the General Assembly. And I think that would lead uh, me to believe, uh, as a constant skeptic and a cynic at times, that perhaps the wording is meant to get the most bang for their buck and that uh, the wording is chosen specifically to allow it to pass through unquestioned uh, by uh, maybe perhaps fellow legislators in the um, chamber in which the bill originated, but also especially the voters um, once it actually makes it to the ballot box. And there's no doubt that politicians engage in a bit of marketing when they name their bills to put forward. So we have the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which became known as Obamacare, but and uh, the Patriot Act, Safe Campus Carry Act. It's always a good policy to name your bill something that really no one could have a problem with. Uh, and I think we're seeing a bit of that gamesmanship in the summaries, where they're really putting in the best possible light to put it before their fellow General Assembly members and eventually the voters. However, the question becomes, do the voters have, I suppose, the motive and the opportunity to look up what these bills are actually doing? In today's internet age, they absolutely have the opportunity. So we have a lot of information available online. As you and I have done, uh, voters can go online and research each of these amendments, learn a bit more about them, learn pros and cons. And if they really want to get into the weeds, they can look at what the actual amendments will be to the Constitution, the actual text that is being proposed. Now, do they have the motivation? How many voters really know that this is on the ballot and know to do this research and are motivated to do that research. Well, that's part of what you and I do as, as educators, as, uh, uh, as journalists. We are here to encourage people to take those steps before they enter the voting booth. Well, and I must say from a personal testimony on my own part uh, that the uh, request for you to come up and talk about these ballot referendum with our listeners was I was researching into the first uh, ballot referendum, which is the Opportunity Schools District, and uh, you know, thought to myself, well, hey, you know, I haven't really taken a chance to look at the other referendum and uh, saw one that's um, about the judiciary mm-hmm. and knowing that um, you've been willing to come out here and talk about the judiciary both at the federal and state level, just got on the phone to you and said, you know, have you read about this? Have you, what do you know about it? And, you know, thought to myself, well, uh, I myself as an advocate for our listeners, we may need to actually uh, spend a little bit more time on these ballot referendum. We are going to, but at this point, it's about time for a short break. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Matt Ressing. He is a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. And he's here today to do a, um, a closer examination of some of the four ballot referendum that will be on the November 8th general election ballot. So please stay tuned for more Millageville Matters.
Thank you for staying tuned to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today we're talking about the constitutional amendments that are on the November 8th general election ballot. I'm joined in the studio by Matt Ressing. Matt's a business law and ethics professor at the J. Wendy Bunting College of Business. In that last segment, of course, we talked a little bit about just the act of amending the Constitution, where those amendments originate from, and how they actually find their way on the ballots, and how they find the form that they do. And in this segment, I thought that we'd actually start talking about some of these amendments. First, I just thought that we'd uh, just go wrote over the list of amendments that we have for us. So Matt, I'll just turn it over to you, and we can go back and forth on uh, what we see in, in these amendments. Sure. Amendment 1 is called the Georgia Authorization of the State Government to Intervene in Failing Local Schools. And the actual question that you would see in the voting booth says, Shall the Constitution of Georgia be amended to allow the state to intervene in chronically failing public schools in order to improve student performance? Now... That sounds pretty great, right? Uh, It sounds like something that we would be interested in, allow the state to intervene in chronically failing public schools, improve student performance. Again, this is language that seems to encourage us to say, yes, uh, of course they should do that. But the devil's in the details. And there have been some groups that have come out that say this is misleading. The ballot measure is not really that one sentence. It is uh, backed up by a huge amount of changes that would occur in the Constitution which define, you know, you have to define chronically failing. You have to say who's going to make that assessment. The state intervenes. What exactly does that mean? And if you read into a little more detail, you would realize that it's, it's basically uh, giving the government power, uh, the governor, sorry, power to make an assessment like this, to put a company in charge of, uh, of fixing the failing schools and still take uh, the local funding that normally goes to those public schools would now go to this new institution under the governor's authority. Now, if you know that, you may still be all for it, but you might not be. And one of the criticisms of this plan has to do with the redirection of local education dollars to this new state or to this proposed state school district. And now, I actually have an audio clip uh, from a campaign event earlier this year in which a student journalist from GC360, that's Georgia College's student-run weekly news television program, um, in which this student journalist asked Governor Nathan Deal to address criticisms that the Opportunity School District is a money grab by the state. And so let's listen to this exchange between Governor Deal and um, this GC360 reporter. Another major issue is education. You've uh, backed a constitutional amendment bill that, if passed in November, will allow states to take over failing public schools. How would you respond to critics who say that this is simply an attempt by states to grab local tax revenue? Well, there's certainly nothing true about that uh, claim, and I've seen that claim. Mm -hmm. The only revenue that will come from the local systems is the money that is already allocated to those schools by the local system. And the only other state money will be the state money that is also allocated to that to those schools. The seriousness of this matter is one that I think we have to not overlook. Mm-hmm. We have almost 68,000 students in this state who are required by law because of where they live to attend chronically failing schools. The, the likelihood that those students are going to be dropouts is greatly increased because of the schools that they're going to. In fact, the graduation rate from chronically failing schools is 23% less than from our normal schools, which really means that almost one out of every two 
children who are going to chronically failing schools will not graduate from high school. Mm -hmm. We've done a lot in criminal justice reform, and one of the things that we have worked on involves those who are currently incarcerated in our prisons. And the most common characteristic that our prison inmates have is they dropped out of school, almost seven out of every 10. So if we do not uh, make reforms within our system of K through 12 to eliminate those dropouts, then we're gonna to continue to see uh, that pipeline of dropouts winding up in trouble, winding up in trouble with the law. And that's why I have often said that the greatest criminal justice reform is education reform. Absolutely. So these claims are baseless completely. And furthermore, what you're trying to do is not only improve our education system, but keep them out of our criminal justice system in the first place. Absolutely. We, if we can give them a good education and give them the tools to be able to get a job, uh, then we're going to be seeing a great difference in our state. And so that was Governor Nathan Deal responding to a question about the financial aspects or one of the financial aspects of this Opportunity School District uh, from one of the reporters at GC360, Georgia College's student-run weekly news program. And, you know, another issue raised by this initiative is local control of the schools. This is an initiative of Governor Nathan Deal. He's been very much the champion of this, even though, you know, from the administrative branch he does not directly write this language, but his floor leaders and, and many of the other people who work closely with the governor did. Looking at these chronically failing schools, appointing a superintendent for this, I, I struggle with how to say this, but this new school district mm -hmm. that really knows no geographic boundaries within the state of Georgia. And then, you know, trying over the course of several years to try to improve these schools or, in fact, I believe abolish those schools if that work cannot bring them up to the level that they should be. It would essentially be a new government state agency that would have the power to either directly take over the management of the school, work out a shared governance plan with the school, uh, or perhaps even transform the school into a charter system. Let's move on to the, the second amendment on the ballot, and this is the Georgia, additional penalties for sex crimes to fund services for sexually exploited children, amendment number two. So this is what we might refer to as an excise tax or an additional penalty. So even though the title refers to sex crimes, there's really two components to it. It would provide uh, additional penalties for people convicted of certain sex crimes. It's a little bit interesting if you look at the crimes that have been specifically called out by the legislature in this bill. It looks to me like they are trying to exclude prostitution, at least in the sense of punishment for a person directly engaged in prostitution and trying to focus more on punishing the people who are running a prostitution business. Their choice of language here is a little interesting if you look at which crimes were included and which were excluded. So not only would it provide additional penalties for people convicted of those crimes, it would also create essentially an excise tax, an additional tax on the adult entertainment businesses. And then we're going to take the money that is gathered from that tax and that penalty, and we're going to give it to a specific fund called the Safe Harbor for Sexually Exploited Children Fund. That sounds good. It sounds like something positive. We're taking money from bad people and giving it to good people. As a business lawyer, though, I am mostly interested in the excise taxes on the adult entertainment industry. And I think that's probably, if you do find any objections to this, you're going to have people looking at that. 
It's what we call a single industry tax. So you're choosing to tax one particular industry. Often this is done by a government, not necessarily to raise money, but more to discourage that type of business. So I think that's the question that is raised in my mind. Is this ballot measure really about gathering money from adult entertainment businesses, or is it essentially taxing them into oblivion? And you have a bit of a, maybe an irony, or, or maybe it's an unintended consequence. If your real intention is to raise a lot of money for the Safe Harbor Fund, then you would actually want more adult entertainment businesses. We're hoping that they flourish in this state, and therefore they can give lots of taxes to go to this fund. But if your real purpose is to put a barrier on adult entertainment industries, then you're not going to get much money for your fund. So although it may seem logical, let's tax this one industry and give to this charity, in practice, I think there's some things to consider. And I want to skip ahead to uh, number four, just because we are talking about taxes. And the fourth amendment on there is the uses of revenue from taxes on fireworks. And that's uh, amendment number four. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if any of those same arguments would be um, applicable for this tax on fireworks. Uh, I think so. I think it's a little different, though, for maybe two reasons. For one, I see more of a causal link or more of a connection between the sale of fireworks and money going to fire stations and trauma care networks. Like, I think we can at least see a, more of a connection between increased use of fireworks and increased fires or more burden on our first responders than I might see in a causal connection between adult entertainment businesses and sexually exploited children in particular. That's not to say there might not be a link there, but I don't think it's quite as obvious as the fireworks link. The other is, I actually took a look into the adult entertainment industry taxes as they exist, and I discovered they already have increased taxes. So adult entertainment, through a bill from a few years ago, already pays, I believe, $5,000 in excise taxes above what they would pay for if you had a non-adult entertainment business. So what we're voting on is an additional excise tax. Fireworks, I don't know if when they were legalized in 2015, if they already had an excise tax or this is the first one. But again, you ask the question, is this the legislature looking for a new revenue stream to fund increased services that need to be provided as a consequence of this industry? Or is it an effort to discourage an industry that they now find unpalatable, maybe because of the noise and the uh, extra burden on the state? And I'm curious, just to take this perhaps a, a step further than we should, is this a, a common practice? Items uh, such as fireworks are uh, newly legalized within a state to begin thinking about directing that tax revenue on those items in certain directions. Or perhaps is that a necessary part of uh, legalization? And of course, you can imagine where I might be going with this with some of the hot button legalization issues of uh, medical marijuana, recreational marijuana, and not only Georgia on the medical marijuana side, but uh, several other states for recreational. Sure. So that's something people talk about when they talk about legalizing marijuana, maybe not for medicinal purposes, but for recreational purposes. If it's for medicinal purposes, you know, we're, we're using it as a medicine to help people. We don't want to put a lot of increased taxes on them, and they would probably go through an insurance company anyway. But particularly for recreational use, there's an argument, yeah, sure, that people you know, legalize these drugs and just really tax them, and then we get uh, some benefits that come out of it. It's a delicate dance, though. Uh, again, are you really trying to discourage an industry? If so, you're not going to get much tax revenue out of it. Or are you trying to encourage that industry but use the fruits of that industry to benefit Georgians in general? It also gets into what do you think the role of government is? This is additional layers of regulation. 
And sometimes it's a trade-off. We will deregulate or you know, decriminalize this practice, but we want something in return. We want these taxes, and that's the trade-off. We see it most often with tobacco products and, and alcohol products. So states have different views on how much they want to encourage or discourage the sales of tobacco. If you go out to California, you'll see very significant excise taxes on tobacco. And it depends on the state's judgment of which industries they want to encourage or discourage, and also what people see as the role of government. Should government have this heavy hand, use taxes as a method of encouraging and discouraging businesses, or should we allow free market forces to carry the day? Well, um, I I see there's one more question to ask about this, but we're going to have to save it for the next segment because we're out of time in this one. And so if you're just joining us, we're talking with Matt Ressing. He's a business law and ethics professor at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business. Today, we're talking a little bit about each of the four ballot referendum that are on the November 8th general election ballot. Thank you for joining us here on Millageville Matters. And just uh, stay tuned because we'll be right back with more. Thank you for tuning in to Millageville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we continue to look forward to the November 8th general election. And today, we're talking about ballot referenda. My guest today is Matt Ressing. He's a business law and ethics professor at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business here at Georgia College. And now, as we were leaving out, we were talking about the Fourth Amendment referendum, that is the Georgia uses of revenue from taxes on fireworks. And I was remiss as we looked at larger aspects of this issue about taxation on certain industries, on certain products or items that we did not talk about where the allocation of this money was going to go to. This was a part of a Senate bill, and we have this listed out here about where this money would go to. So of these taxes on these newly legalized fireworks, the legislation uh, stipulates that 55% of revenue would go towards the Georgia Trauma Care Network Commission. Sounds like, and I'm remiss to say that I did not research into this commission, not necessarily generally to your trauma care hospitals, but to a commission that oversees them, I'm sure is there to promote the use of those. 40% of the revenue would go towards the Georgia Firefighter Standards and Training Council, uh, specifically to be used towards a grant uh, program for improving the equipment and training for Georgia firefighters. And the remaining 5% of revenue would actually go back to the local governments to be used for public safety purposes. Mm-hmm. At the risk of conflating this with uh, with other funding mechanisms. Now, 
Do you think that there's any leeway in which ways these revenues can be used once it is put into the Constitution like this? Right. I bring this up because of items of the past, uh, Mm -hmm. such as your super speeder bills (laughs) that place increased fines on motorists when they're caught going so far above the um, speed limit. Some investigative reporting, I believe, by our colleagues in the media, <laughs> that uh, those funds were actually not used towards that purpose. Uh, yeah. Do you think that by enshrining these in the Constitution, that is an actual a deadlock on where that money will be allocated to? Yes and no. I think this is actually a difference between the two amendments we're talking about here. And I'm glad you brought it up because that was another, maybe a red flag or something that popped up in my mind when thinking about the sex crimes ballot initiative. It specifies a, a certain fund, Safe Harbor for Sexually Exploited Children Fund, which uh, I haven't looked into it, but it sounds like a a very good organization. But I think some people would argue, well, wait a second, you're taxing local adult entertainment businesses, penalties for people that have committed sex crimes within our community, and now you're taking that money and you seem to be sending it to a state agency. Couldn't we use that money for domestic violence shelters here in Baldwin County? Couldn't we use it for programming to help people out of a life of prostitution or to try and remedy what we might see as ill effects of adult entertainment businesses here in our community. So that's an argument you're going to have, not just where is the money coming from, but where is it going to? Now, to get more to your question, can we change this later? Just because we said the money's going to this place, does that guarantee it? I think for Amendment 2, the sex crimes one, it actually does, because it's written right into the amendment that it goes to this safe harbor for sexually exploited children fund. However, My reading of the fireworks excise tax, the place where the money is going is not actually written into the amendment, but the amendment is written to complement two Senate bills that specify where the money goes to. So my guess, my educated guess on this is that when it comes to that amendment, if they wanted to switch where the money is headed to, they'd have a lot more leeway than with Amendment 2. They would just have to pass a different Senate bill or resolution. They wouldn't have to go through a constitutional amendment process again. I do think they've locked them into certain language like funding trauma care, firefighter equipping. It would still have to go to things of that nature. But for the fireworks amendment, I do think they've given themselves a little more leeway in exactly where it goes and how much of the revenue is used for different purposes. (laughs) <laughs> and so now let's go back to Amendment Number 3, and that was at the core of the reason why I wanted to ask you to come up and talk with our listeners today, and that's the uh, Georgia Replacement of the Judicial Qualifications Commission, Amendment Number 3. Can you introduce this one for us? So this one is a very simple question. We're asking you to judge who will judge the judges of our judges. You with me me so far? (laughs) Uh, So this is all about the Judicial Qualifications Commission. I'm going to call it the JQC to save time. And these are the people who judge the judges. They are essentially a uh, watchdog group that decides when judges have violated ethics rules. This doesn't mean we don't like the way they ruled in a case. It more has to do with they've shown conflicts of interest. They've shown bias. They are engaged in harassment or illegal acts from the bench. They're basically making the whole judiciary look bad. Pretty serious infractions that really affect the way they rule in a courtroom and the way that justice is perceived in Georgia. So 1972, through a constitutional amendment, this organization, this agency was established called the JQC, and it's an independent agency. So it was established by the legislature, but they don't get to pick who sits on this board. 
It has three lawyers chosen by the state bar, which is not a governmental organization. It's an independent organization that oversees lawyer misconduct. And pretty much every lawyer is a member of the state bar. Three are lawyers from the state bar, two judges that are chosen by the Georgia Supreme Court, and two regular people, people who actually cannot be members of the state bar. So probably not lawyers, probably not judges, and they're chosen by the governor. So this seven-member panel investigates judicial misconduct, and then can bring charges against the sitting judges to remove them from the bench if they find probable cause to do so. It is now under attack. What this ballot measure does is the General Assembly saying, we don't really like what the JQC has been doing. We want to replace it. Let's get rid of it, and we're going to replace it with something. And we don't like that the JQC, we think they're too secret, so we're going to make them more open somehow. And that's about the limit of what we have here. The legislature is asking the people for permission to replace the JQC with something of their creation, but we don't have a lot of details of exactly what that would be. Again, we're about out of time in this segment, so we'll have to go into those details in a subsequent segment. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today we're talking about the four constitutional amendments that are in referendums on the November 8th general election ballot. Joining me in the studio is Matt Ressing, and he is a professor of business law and ethics at the, at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Milledgeville Matters on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we're trying to help you get prepared to go to the ballot box for the November 8th general election. We're talking about the four constitutional amendments that are on this November 8th ballot. Joining me in the studios is Matt Ressing, a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. In that last segment, we were talking about third and fourth amendments that to um, allocate the uses of taxes raised off of fireworks. But then really the meat of our question here today, uh, which is about amendment number three, which is the replacement of the Judicial Qualifications Commission or the JQC as we'll be referring to it um, in this segment. Please, if you could give us a little bit of background about why this has come up recently here, the JQC, and, and maybe perhaps some of the reasons why the JQC or Judicial Qualifications Commission may sound familiar to people. Sure. Well, it, it's a bit of a question why this is coming up now. And I think that we're, we start to get into the pros and cons of this because people have very differing views on whether 
we should be messing with the JQC at all, and why now of all times? The JQC investigates judges. We don't know exactly how many judges they investigate or all of the details because that part of the proceeding is kept secret. The complaint process is confidential. The investigation process is confidential. And if it never gets past that stage, we really might not know about it. And that's to protect the identity and reputation of the people bringing the complaints, but also to protect the judges. So the JQC, we do learn a lot about it, though, because it's hard to keep anything confidential nowadays. Uh, you know, we, a lot of this has been reported in the press, particularly judges that have stepped down under particularly unusual or prurient circumstances, and, and the, the word gets out. But that's been one problem. We saw recently, or at least a problem according to some, we saw recently a judge, Judge Cynthia Becker, who I believe is out of DeKalb County, and she was being investigated by the JQC. She had made a ruling in a corruption case involving public school administrators. And one of the people under investigation in that case, or I guess under indictment in that case, had turned evidence on his two co-conspirators. So he, he cut a deal with the prosecutors. He was going to get a lot less jail time. In fact, he was going to get a probationary sentence, whereas they were going to go to jail for a while. And this seemed to have struck Judge Becker uh, as as unfair and basically you know, said, no, you, know, you are going to go to jail at least for a little bit. He applied for bond, so bail. And she, you know, depending on who you talk to, stretched out the process and so that he wasn't granted bond, at least not immediately. And this appears to have uh, raised the ire of some folks on the JQC. She was called in for an interview. And according to her, that interview quickly became very accusatory. She felt like the JQC was overstepping their bounds and, and treating her with disrespect and then pressured her based on allegations that she had lied to the JQC, was putting pressure on her to resign. So again, you know, we don't know the details. I, neither of us was there, but we do have this story from a judge saying the JQC essentially you know, railroaded me out of a job, and I couldn't defend myself in court because I didn't want to go through that public process. Of course, so the JQC at the end of investigation might give you a choice. Look, we can bring charges against you, and then you get a lawyer, you get to fight it out just like anyone else would in court. Or if you resign now or to agree to take this penalty, it doesn't need to go any further and we can keep it confidential. I think this judge was saying that power and the pressure has led them to use it in, in improper ways. This found some traction with a few members of the Georgia legislature who advanced this bill. And it's worth saying that, you know, I'm going to give you some cons in a minute, and I hear a lot of cons, but it's worth saying that two-thirds of the House and the Senate approved this bill. So it certainly had at least nominal support in both the House and the Senate. When we think about what's at stake here, I made the comment to you uh, when we were talking about this before the interview. Uh, for many lay people out there, I think that this is one of those considerations where it's, a, is this a, a six of one and half dozen of another? As we've talked about in the past, our um, judiciary for the most part is elected. What we're talking about doing is, well, now, I go there, and as I consider where I'm going, I, oh, I need to walk it back a little bit. Of course, there are some judges on the JQC, but it's also appointments by the governor and appointments by the state bar. And that's where you get a lot of, you know, we're starting to get into the cons, I suppose, and people say, you know, you shouldn't mess with this. This is an independent watchdog, which is such a rare thing, we, and they need that independence so that they can do their job. 
If this becomes a political organization that's chosen by the legislature, then the second a judge gets in trouble, they're going to go running to their buddies in the legislature, and they're going to put pressure on the JQC to drop the case. So we need this independence. At the same time, though, you know, you're absolutely right. Two of these are judges, and they were appointed, so presumably elected, but, but more likely, you know, uh, or at least it's possible that they were appointed by the governor. Last time I was on the radio, we were talking about our local judicial elections and how it's very hard to unseat an incumbent judge. So often you'll get a gubernatorial appointment when someone steps down, and that person's on the bench for a couple of years, and by the time they come up for re-election, nobody will run against them. Um, so, so maybe it's already somewhat politicized. We have two members that are chosen by the Georgia Supreme Court and our judges. We have two members that are chosen by the governor, so non-lawyers, but chosen by the governor. And then we have three chosen by the state bar. So I think those are the three we could probably say are, are truly independent and in that they're not involved in the political process in any way, but they make up a minority of the board. But could those people you know, truly be independent in which they are looking over the body which they are a member of, which is, um, I guess, the, the legal community of the sure. state? So can, can lawyers to... watch lawyers? Well, to non-lawyers, I think that part of the selling point here is, oh, we want these sneaky lawyers you know, watching other lawyers. They're all a bunch of crooks. Now, to lawyers themselves, we don't feel that way. But I think, I think research bears us out. State bars in general – are really a success story of a self-regulating industry. I think most research has shown that lawyers are, are one of the better self-regulating industries. We, you know, we are willing to call out fellow lawyers for misconduct. That's a lot of what our state bar does. It's kind of what a JQC does, but uh, you know, without judges, with lawyers. So if I engage in professional misconduct, someone has to complain about it, but then our state bar will investigate and, and they will reprimand. They will, uh, in some cases, disbar a lawyer as being improper. So I think to most lawyers, that doesn't seem strange at all that lawyers and judges would be watching judges. I think they would say those are the people in the best position, and our history reinforces the idea that that works. Now, of course, you said that you had other cons you wanted to bring into uh, the conversation. Sure. Well, let me get through all the pros first, I guess, so I can give each side equal time. As you can tell, the people that support this do feel like it's, a too, it's too secret of an organization, do feel that these this current JQC has been going too far. In fact, uh, Representative Willard, who was one of the proponents, called it a star chamber, so a secret extrajudicial chamber that kind of meets out justice according to its whims. And I think they do maybe feel that the judges watching judges and lawyers watching lawyers is, is a bad idea. Now, the cons, we have a number of people that have been very outspoken against this, and one of them has been Senator Josh McCoon, who was uh, here on our campus a few weeks ago as part of Constitution Week. And I think his viewpoint on this really sums up a lot of the viewpoints that we see against this. And he said a few things. He said, first of all, if it, don't, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. This has been going on for quite some time since 1972. And for the most part, they've been doing a good job. Maybe there are some tweaks. Maybe Judge Becker did get a bum deal, and we should look into that. But that's not a reason to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Other arguments is that, as we mentioned before, judges need independence to do their job. And even if some of these board members are, you know, once or twice removed from the political process, there's still those layers. If we recreate this into a creature of the legislature, the politics is going to be right up front, and that's not a good thing. And then probably the one that finds the most ground with me is that we don't know what they're going to replace it with. So there's one argument that says, 
all right, let's talk about this. Maybe we do need to change the JQC. Maybe they could be more open. Maybe we need to change how people are chosen. But tell us what the plan is before we give you the power to make that plan. This amendment essentially gives the legislature a blank check. And the other thing Senator McCoon said that, that I hadn't even thought about is this amendment abolishes the JQC and says, we will create something new. It doesn't say when they'll create something new. And he basically said, well, I wouldn't hold my breath for this to get done. So what's going to happen in the meantime? We abolish the JQC, and while we're figuring out where it's going to go, what happens then? Who's watching the judges? So now you've put out your thoughts on it, your pros and your cons, mm-hmm. stripping away any subjectivity that you might have uh, as a member of the profession. Mm-hmm. Could you give some further advice to voters as they go out and make up their own minds about this referendum? And then I'll ask you the same about uh, the other three, because, of course, we did want to focus on this highly just to take advantage of your expertise in this area. Sure. Well, I try very hard not to give my opinion you know, as, as a teacher As an educator, I don't want to be coercive. I want people to do their own research and decide for themselves. I think with the JQC amendment, my main concern is really the last point that I made, is that this seems very vague for a constitutional amendment. We are getting rid of a a constitutional agency and replacing it with with, with something, but we don't know quite what. Uh, Like Senator McCoon, I would be open to considering changes, but I want to know exactly what they are. So that is that is probably my prime motivation uh, when thinking about this Amendment 3. And now as we look at the other referenda on this November 8th ballot, cite any resources or um, other places that you go to to kind of do a little bit of research about these. Sure. Well, I think you and I both go to Ballotpedia, which is uh, just a great starting place to learn about, kind of draw back the curtain and say, what's behind this very brief language uh, on Ballotpedia that will give you the full text of the amendment. It really lets you dig down into as deep as you want to go. So that's what I recommend. I I recommend that people not just read the language that will be in the voting booth, but they also see how exactly is the Constitution being amended. Now, for some people, that may be a little too much detail. I think particularly when it comes to the Opportunity Schools District, the actual bill is very long and and, and evolved. So go to news sources and read both sides. That's the important thing. Make sure you're not living in an echo chamber of people who share a certain view. Get the views of people who support it. Get the views of people who oppose it. Really dig into it and then make a decision for yourself. Really, the only advice I would give people on these amendments is make sure that you're informed. This is serious. It may not seem to you as serious as electing a president or a governor or a senator, but it really does affect our lives, our rights and responsibilities in the state of Georgia. So become as educated as you can and then make the decision that that you believe in. Well, Matt? Thank you, as always, for coming in and helping us to understand just a little bit more about these issues that we will be deciding on um, in a a couple of weeks or maybe even as soon as tomorrow. But uh, also uh, for uh, many of the other ways that you help us uh, shed a light on the legal world that surrounds us all the time. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we were looking at some of the ballot referenda that are on the November 8th general election ballot. Joining me in the studio is Matt Ressing. He's a professor of business law and ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business. I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. It's been my pleasure spending a portion of the evening with you here on Millageville Matters, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.